Good morning. I'm going to share the scripture. The scripture will be coming from Hebrew 13, 1 through 17. And let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. I promised uh, Henry that I would not tell you that today is his 60th birthday. So I, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not, I, won't, I won't tell anybody, Henry. I won't, I won't tell anybody. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the chance uh, to worship. Thank you for uh, the chance to worship in song, in uh, our kids leading us. Thank you for the chance to pray. Thank you for the chance to hear your word read uh, with passion. God, I thank you for the impact you have in our lives day in and day out. God, may these moments we share together be, uh, though they are small, though they are, are short, and though they, um, God, are, are certainly not... Um, all that you deserve. God, may these be moments that are a sacrifice of praise. God, may our hearts and minds that are, that are uh, uh, as we come just distracted sometimes and, and overwhelmed sometimes and confused and just desperate. God, whatever we're coming in with today, God, may we lay it before you and plead that your power would be um, experienced and felt in such a way that we worship you. God, as we uh, look forward even now to the, the close of this service when we will celebrate this meal that Christ reminded, told us to do in remembrance of Him. 
God, may these moments of worship be a, a, a celebration and a remembrance, a holy remembrance of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and through an empty tomb. Lord, bless this time in your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this, be, this week being Thanksgiving week, I imagine you've got a number of things you're thankful for, perhaps even some people you were thankful for. Hopefully you're getting to spend some time with some of those people that you were thankful for and able to enjoy the week with them. Uh, maybe you're thankful for parents, grandparents, kids, siblings, any number of, of people that you uh, celebrate God for. And as you think about them, I wonder if you've considered not only just how, how thankful we are for the people we love, but the, the impact they have in our lives. I wonder if you consider the, the ways that the people around you that you love and that you care for, the way that they impact you. Uh, this week, uh, Aaron, very, very movingly, uh, told me a way that I impact him. Or maybe that was last week. I guess it was last week. And um, we, had, we, we have lunch together, uh, try to do it every week, but sometimes with schedules and things that hadn't happened. So we had been a couple weeks that we hadn't met, and then we had lunch together last week, or two weeks, the last two weeks we've had it. And, um, and he said that his family noticed that he had you know, not been hanging out with me as much for a couple weeks and then started hanging out with me. And the way they noticed is that he picked up on one of my mannerisms. Apparently, when, I'm, when I talk about something and then I'm ready to move on, I say, so yeah. And I just, that's my transition. <laughs> and I've never noticed that. But apparently, Aaron now does that at home with his own family. And so I'm glad that I'm impacting and influencing Aaron's life for good and uh, for all that. Believe it or not, I wasn't going to, that wasn't in my notes. That was off time. Anyway, well, are the people around us influence us and have an impact on us, probably in ways greater than we know, and hopefully for good. And, and as you think about uh, the people that impact you, you probably can also think about all kinds of things that, that impact our lives in big and small ways. Uh, the culture we're in, just kind of the, the, the water we swim in, so to speak, influences us in countless ways. Uh, we, the, the media we take in, you know, whatever we're watching, that influences us. The books we read or don't read, the, the, our work environment, the, the way we, the stock market and whatever happens there, that impacts us. Uh, weather, natural disasters, money, all of that can have an impact on our lives. Uh, the chemical makeup of our brains, our own DNA, our biology, things that we, we, we just are born with, uh, the food we eat, the sleep we get or don't get many times, our education, so many things impact you. You are who you are today because of a countless list of things that influence you and impact you. Many of them we're thankful for. Many of them have been hardships, but they impact us. They influence us. They change us. Some of those are for good and some of them are for bad. Some of them are, impact us in big ways, some in small ways. You know, your, your hairstyle is probably impacted by your, your genetics and then your culture. Like that's about, you know, it's just little things that just impact who you are. But your parents, for good, bad, or the otherwise, if you spent 18 years, 18 formative years or so with your parents, that, that had a tremendous impact on your life. One way or the other, probably a mixture of good and bad, right? Some things influence in big ways, some in small ways. Maybe you can look to a coach or a mentor, parents, whoever else, and you can say, this is, I can see their influence. At the same time, I hope that there is, is one influence that is greater than all else in your life if you call yourself a Christian. If you're a believer, the Bible is very clear on what should be the biggest influence in your life. There is none greater and there is none better than our Lord 
Jesus Christ. He should have the single greatest influence in your life. There is no one and nothing in the world better than Him. So it is a good influence, the best influence. And He is who we need above all else. Whatever else we may have, whatever else we may have experienced, we need Christ. And we need His influence and His impact in our lives. This whole fall we've been studying the book of Hebrews, which is all about how Jesus is better. And we come to the very last chapter, this concluding chapter, and, and, and as we think back on this whole book, we think back on how, um, no, how, how all the way through it's been making this clear point that Jesus is better. Now, I, I've probably said that most of the 13 weeks we've been here, and not one single time this fall uh, has somebody come up to me and tried to argue that point. No, nobody has come to me and said, you know, I, I was thinking this week and I came up with something better than Jesus. I, I had an idea. Uh, I, had, I thought of somebody or something or someone but nobody's argued with me, right? No, nobody's argued this. And yet, do we, do we really believe it? Do we really believe? Like nobody's argued, you all nod. Nobody's, nobody's like gets mad when I say Jesus is better, right? Not, not a controversial statement. However, if I asked a different question, instead of just asking who's the best, if I asked who has the greatest impact on how you live this week? The same, it's, it's the same question. Who's the best? Who's the most influential? If the answer is not the same to both, then something's missing. If we aren't answering who's the most influential in, in my life with the same of who's, who's the best, then one of the two is, is wrong. If we really believe Jesus is best, then we would be saying, that, that's who I want to influence my life the most. And yet day in, day out, I, I don't think for most of us, Jesus is the greatest influence. He is a influence. He impacts certain parts of our lives. But there are many things that are shaping us outside of Christ. As we consider our life on a day-to-day basis, what is it that is most influential? What is it that is most impactful in the way that you live? Maybe there are certain decisions you're making around your own personal goals, your financial goals, your comfort, your desires. Maybe there's a certain mainstream media or non-mainstream media. This is the main voice in your head, the main voice in your ears day in, day out. Maybe there's certain people, <clears throat> maybe good people, maybe not so good people. They're the main ones shaping the way you think and the way you live and the way you act. If so, if you're letting that thing, that voice, those people shape you more than Christ, what you believe in your heart of hearts is that that is better than Jesus. So while nobody argues that Jesus is the best, Jesus is better than everything else, functionally, day to day, I don't think we all believe that, at least not to the degree we should. Worldly pleasures, personal comfort, pleasing people, financial gain, success in material ways are all things competing for our affections and desires. And every time we sin against God, the only reason we do it is because we believe something is better than Him. Something's better than Him. Every time we sin against God, the only reason we do it is we think something is better than Him. Hebrews 13, the whole book of Hebrews, the 13 chapters of Hebrews, is a very very deep and rich, theolo- theologically rich book. And, and it seems interesting to, to have that long of a book to essentially communicate something that nobody's arguing with me about. It's, it's 13 chapters trying to argue to you, try to convince you that Jesus is better. Whereas if it was just you, you knowing that, for most of you, you know, there, there's going to be people that disagree and come from different backgrounds, but, but for many of you, just that one sentence, Jesus is better than everything, 
that he could have saved a lot of pages and a lot of ink and a lot of time. You just said, yeah, I agree with that at the very beginning. But Hebrews 13, the 13 chapters of Hebrews is trying to do something more than just to get you to mentally assent to that. It's trying to do something a lot more important than just your mind saying, I, I agree with that statement. It's trying to convince not just your head, but your heart. It's trying to convince your affections. It's trying to convince deep within you that your soul loves Jesus more than anything else. That's what the book of Hebrews all the way through has been trying to do. Hebrews is 13 chapters of knocking the, the cap off a fire hydrant and putting you in front of the gushing water to drench you in Jesus. I mean, this is not just giving you one sentence or one idea or, or one little tidbit or, or, or devotional thought for the day. Hebrews, 13 chapters worth of just drenching in the holiness and the greatness of our God, supremely in His Son who came and died for us so that we could know Him. For 13 chapters, we've been sitting in front of that fire hydrant, just soaking it in and walking away drenched. If you leave the book of Hebrews still thirsty, you, you didn't have your mouth open. This is, this is so rich. And it's such good news for sinners and for sufferers. The book of Hebrews is good for sinners because choosing something less good than Jesus is never really satisfying. For us as sinners, we come to Jesus and we find this is what I need to satisfy my soul. But it's not just for sinners that Hebrews is preaching to us. Hebrews is also preaching to the sufferer to those that the, the circumstances of life have thrown us in the bottom of the pit. And, and we feel like when we look up, there are all kinds of ropes you could pull onto thinking this will get me out. This, this, this will bring me out of my pit. But there's only one rope that when you pull on it, the other end is sure. And it's the gospel. In reality, Jesus came down the rope and pulled you up, right? You could pull it, family or drugs or anything else, and ultimately the, the, the rope is loose. It's just going to come loose and you're still there. Jesus is best. He is the best in the entire world. And when we're tempted to look elsewhere, if we truly know who Jesus is, we'll recognize He's the one we rely on. He's the one we need. How, how great is Jesus? Just, just how great does the book of Hebrews tell us Jesus is? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us a lot about Jesus. It tells us that He is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the whole world is created. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. He made purifications for sins by dying on the cross, and then He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes, not everything always looks great. We don't see everything in submission or subjection to God, but we see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels and was crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory, of even more glory than Moses. Much, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is our high priest who passed through the heavens, the Son of God. For who, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of him, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Jesus is the one who established a new relationship, a new covenant with us. The one who said, I will put their law, my law on their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And one day, he says, he won't, we won't have to teach one another, a neighbor or brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, he says, from the least to the greatest, for I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus is the one who once and for all entered into the holy place, not by means of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, not securing just a, a temporary conditional salvation, but securing for us an eternal redemption. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If we truly believe those things about Jesus, then we know there is none better than him. So we can draw near to him. We can hold fast to him. We can stir up one another to love and good deeds. We can have faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, confidence in him who we cannot see. We can lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can endure his discipline, know that knowing that he disciplines his children whom he loves. And we can strive for peace and holiness, knowing that we are headed to the city of the living God. Jesus is truly better, and if our minds and hearts are convinced of that, it'll show up in how we live. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is all about. That was my summary. The entire book of Hebrews. It's about what Christ has done. And if you believe in Him, you truly know He is better, it will show up in how you live. And that's what Hebrews 13 is about. Hebrews 13 is, if you, if you believe the first 12 chapters, it will change. It has to change how you live. If you're still living for yourself or for the things of this world, then Hebrews, there's, there's, there's no way you're going to live like Hebrews 13 calls you to live. There's no way. But if Christ is better to you, if you believe He is better than everything else, you'll live like Hebrews 13. Your heart will be changed in such a way that this is how you want to live. So what does Hebrews 13 say? If you know all that about Christ, well, it starts with this. Jesus changes how we love. He changes how we love. Verse 1 in Hebrews 13 says, Let brotherly love continue. One of the remarkable things about the New Testament was it was written in a culture that, that had a deep, deep love for family. The first century world, Jewish world, that family was so meaningful to them. And yet one day Jesus is teaching and there's such a big crowd around him that, that his family can't get to him. And so somebody, you know, the word passes through the crowd and they say, hey, Jesus, somebody, is, they get the message to him and say, hey, outside are your mother and your brothers and your sisters and they want you. They got the message to him. And Jesus remarkably, shockingly says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who do the will of the Father. He wasn't dismissing that his parents, his mom, or his brothers and sisters is unimportant. What he was saying is those who are his brothers and sisters in the Lord, his Christian brothers, people who believe in God, they are just as much, if not more, his family than those who are related to him by blood. As Christians, the people in this room and other brothers and sisters in the Lord who are worshiping in other churches today, they are more our family than somebody who is biologically related to us, but is not a Christian. That is a shocking way to think of family. 
Now, it's not that we disown our family. Of course, we love our family too, but we are called to love each other in this room like our own family. That only happens if Christ has changed your heart. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He's talking to the disciples. As they love one another, it will change. The, the world will look at them and say something's different about them. Verse 2, it doesn't just change the way we love our brothers and sisters. It changes the way we love strangers. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And this is probably a, a reference, uh, an allusion to what Abraham did in Genesis 18 when he entertained angels of the Lord. But what he's saying is that he's probably making a reference here because of other references in this chapter to the way Christian missionaries would travel. And they would go and they're trying to spread the gospel and they would show up in a town and they need somebody to care for them. And they turn to their brothers and sisters in the Lord, even though they don't know them yet. He said, you entertain when you welcome in Christian missionaries who are traveling through, you're meeting a need and you're helping show the love of Christ in a way that is countercultural. You know, they welcome strangers in their house. That's weird. Unless you know Jesus and you're loving out of the overflow of your life. When you meet a need by opening your home, you're showing the love of the Lord. Verse 3 talks, extends it out even further. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Again, there's probably a reference to, because it says, in the body, fellow Christians who are mistreated, so persecuted Christians, your brothers and sisters, are in prison. And in that day and time, prisoners weren't fed unless somebody brought them food. So he's talking about a very real and material sense of caring for our brothers and sisters when they're hurting, when they're afflicted, when they're in pain. Caring for our brothers and sisters, even when it costs us something and when it's hard to do. That is a shocking way to love. He goes even further. Maybe, maybe this progresses even more shocking as it goes. Let marriage be held in honor by all and let marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexual immorality and the adulteress. The first century world was a very sexually promiscuous time. People did all kinds of crazy things. And yet, I think our culture gives the first century world a run for its money, don't we? This, the world we live in has all kinds of crazy ideas when it comes to this topic. No, no non-Christian, uh, non-Christians look at Christian, the Christian sexual ethic and say, you're crazy. You're, you're crazy. Wait, wait until uh, to only have sex within marriage. The non-Christian world's like, what in the world? Why would you do that? And yet, as we study God's word, we see God's good design for marriage and the way the marriage bed is meant to be kept holy. He very clearly is telling us that if, you're, if somebody is having sex outside of marriage, that they believe that sex is better than Jesus. And he says, God will judge the sexual immorality and the adulterer. It's one or the other. Either you're pursuing sex or you're pursuing Jesus. You're honoring Jesus or you're pursuing your own desires. Keep going more radical. Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Of all the things we can love, he's warning us, love, love your family, love strangers, love prisoners, love your wife, but don't love money. Don't love money. We, we read Michael Kruger's book, says money is about like, like uh, fire. It can either keep you warm or it can burn your house down. <laughs> you got to be careful. First, uh, First Timothy 6, 12 says, Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not worthy of your love. It does not love you back. It is not worth your love. It is a tool. It's a gift from the Lord. It is not worth your affections because it will not love you back. 
That's the context. Those, those commands about love, family, strangers, prison, marriage, money, that's the context where we read two really powerful promises from God. And they connect here in a really unique way. Verse 5 finishes with, I will never leave you or forsake you. And verse 6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The first one was given to Joshua when he was filling Moses' shoes and about to lead the people into battle into the promised land. And so God told him, I will never leave you or forsake you. And yet here he's saying, don't love money. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's taking the same promise and saying, you, you seek after money or, or, or immoral sexual practices or, or dishonoring other people. You seek after those things because you don't really trust me. You are not loving like you should. Your, your love is, is altered. It is twisted. It is, is messed up because you don't truly trust me. If we truly trust that God is always with us, that he meets our needs, then we can love rightly. Jesus changes how we love when we recognize what he has done for us. And he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus is better than everything else. And, and the way that this, this shows up in the gospel is that when you look at a promise like this, I'll never leave you or forsake you, you think, if we're honest about our sin, we deserve to be left. We deserve to be forsaken. How, how could Jesus possibly make this kind of, kind of promise to us? How can God the Father look at us, sinful and wretched though we are, and say, I'll never leave you or forsake you? Do you know how He can keep that promise? It's because Jesus went to the cross and took in our sins. And on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you and I never will be. He took our sin, and because he took it, God can keep his promise to never leave us or forsake us. He changes how we love. He doesn't just change how we love. He changes how we lead. These next few verses are focused primarily to the people in the church and how they look at their leaders. But I have to tell you, as a leader reading these verses, I have to first hear these as very strong convictions about the way I lead and the way that other leaders in the church lead. There are a lot of overlap for other kind of leaders, maybe for your job, for your home, but it's primarily uh, speaking to us in the church. Verse 7, uh, it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. So there is a command there. What's a leader supposed to do in the church? Speak the word of God. If we are leading the church from our own ideas or dreams or visions or things that we come up with on our own, we are not leading. <laughs> We leaders who are in the church are ones who speak the word of God, not our ideas or the culture's ideas, not just echoing back popular you know, things that entertain. You can get, find that everywhere else. The church is meant to speak the word of God. That's the command on us. And he says this in verse 9. He says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So that's a command. I hear that as a command to us as teachers, not to be trying to always come up with novel or creative uh, in the sense of unique ideas. Our, our job is not to create news. The news has already happened. It's the good news. Our job is to report the news, to, to proclaim the same good news. That doesn't mean we, we take creative ways in expressing it and applying it in unique ways, but our job is not to come up with some fanciful new interpretation. Our job is to keep proclaiming the same good news that changes people's life. The connection here is powerful to what he says about Christ. Uh, he says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means our message doesn't change. Our message of salvation doesn't change because of what Christ has accomplished for us. 
preach grace. Preach grace. That is the main thing. Now, I'll tell you that part of the reason I, I, we preach the way we do uh, in here and the way we're committed the way we are is because of this kind of command. Hey, I'm going to pause one second. Everybody is sweating in here. Do we mind if we push that? I'm watching people fan. I'm sweating. I'm just going to pause and just call it. Thank you. Praise the Lord. All right. I'm going to try. I, I, I do, I've been debating that for five minutes whether to stop and say something. So I'm gonna do, there we go. I'm getting us back on track. Hey, so the way we preach, the way we do is out of this right here. This, this call to preach grace, my, my commitment to you is to be an expository preacher, which means I expose the word of God to you. I'm not creating ideas or coming up with ideas. I'm interpreting God's word and giving it, just feeding you this. And in the same, I love this, within just a few days of each other, uh, I got two comments. Both were meant very kindly. Just, hey, we're still in Hebrews, you know, like, <clears throat> we've kind of been here for a while, you know. And uh, at the same time, uh, just a couple days later, I got, hey, you're going to try to preach 25 verses on one Sunday? How in the world are you going to fit through that? And that, that is the tension I live in. There's a lot of Bible to preach, and so I got to kind of move along. But, but if, I, if I don't dig deep, then we'll never grow. We'll never grow. So my, my commitment to you, and I, I know this, this may be, maybe for some of you, 13 weeks was a little bit of a push. I was like, hey, it's kind of a long time to be in one spot, you know. But our desire, my desire, our desire as church leaders is that we would grow in depth and maturity. We want to change. We, we, he changes the way we lead. If, if we wanted to just come at this from a natural way, hey, I would just give you topical things that are interesting and compelling and, and you know, a little fun and games. No, I, my goal is not to entertain you. <laughs> My goal is that you would be more mature in Christ. My, my verse, I told you the very first time I ever came to Infinity Church, and my, my job description, my favorite verse, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And you'll see in here, verse uh, 17, I, we are held accountable. We, are, we have to give account for those we lead. My, if I get to the end of my life, and God, look, I, we entertain some people for a couple decades. That is not a good account. Our job, our goal is that you would be mature in Christ. So if 13 weeks was a little bit of a push for you in Hebrews, just know that we could have done 10 years, you know, so we were being gracious. People have done it. But we are, we are trying to teach and lead in such a way that we're focused on the main thing. We're focused on the gospel so that you would grow in maturity in faith. That's what we're trying to do as we grow in, uh, as we teach and as we lead the, the, in, in the teaching ministry of this church. We will give account, but I'll tell you, it is a joy. I love it. verse 17. It says, Keep, uh, Obey your leaders, submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy. With joy. I'll tell you, I, have, I, I know you've got a great job. I've got the greatest job in the whole world because I get to tell people about Jesus and keep pointing you to the Word of God and watch how God is working in your life. I love what I get to do, and it's a privilege to be able to do it. I count it a joy. Jesus changes the way we love. He changes the way we lead. We don't lead the way just a natural, the natural world would tell us to lead. He changes the way we do it, and he also changes how we follow. He changes how we follow. Perhaps the biggest change he makes is that we follow. <laughs> he calls us to not just make our own path in the world, to just do things the way we want to do them, and as an American, maybe it's male, I don't know, we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time being people who follow. But as, by definition, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus' first command to us is, come, follow me. Not come and go do your own thing, or just go, you know. It's come, 
It's follow Jesus. That's our role as leaders in the church is to point to the Lord and say, follow me as I follow Jesus. He is the leader and we are not. And that is hard on our pride. We don't like following. We like doing our own thing. And it's especially hard when he puts uh, imperfect, sinful people in charge of things and tells you to follow them. Especially hard on you because I'm your leader and that's tough on you. You got to follow me. Like, sorry, you're stuck. You know, that's all you got. Uh, maybe, maybe as you, you know, think about following my leadership, you could say it as, hey, God, God thinks you are capable of enormous, uh, overcoming enormous challenges. And uh, the only, the most patient, generous, and kind, enduring, loving people could put up with me. And so maybe you're like the special forces for God. Like you had to go through almost torture, but God accomplished, is going to accomplish major things through you, you know. He's going to equip you for amazing things. But in reality, our job as church leaders is to point to the great shepherd. Verse 20, that's what Jesus is called. We're all following him. Our job as church leaders is saying, look, there's, there's Jesus. Come on, come on. I'm, I'm following Jesus. Come with me. Let's keep pointing to Jesus. That's our job as church leaders. And for you, as people who are part of a church, is that we would then follow the Lord together. And the way that we do that, he says, is in verse 8, is he strengthens us in grace. He strengthens us in grace. And he gives a beautiful picture here. All, all of Hebrews has been filled with these Old Testament references and sacrifices. And so what he's done here now is brings us to a culmination. How do, we, how do we lead? How do we follow? How do we love? It's all by grace. In the Old Testament, there's one type of sacrifice that the way they did it is they took this animal outside of the camp to kill it. And the, way, the reason they did that is that inside the camp represented God's presence and God's holiness. So anything that was inside was meant to be holy. If it's not holy, it's sent outside the camp. And so the animal was a, a ceremonial or, or a symbolic way of taking sin and putting it outside the camp so that sin was removed. And the animal was killed and sent, sent away and then killed. And when Jesus comes, of course, it's Hebrews, he's fulfilling what God has done. Verse 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That is grace. You and I are the ones that are meant to be cast off. You and I are the ones who are meant to be sent out and sent aside. And yet Jesus went out for us. Jesus went out like we deserve to do. Jesus suffered outside the gate. He was rejected by the Father so that all who believe in him could forever be accepted by grace. When our hearts truly believe that about Jesus, when we truly see what he has done for us, we recognize he's the best there ever is, there ever was. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is nothing better. And when we believe that, the Holy Spirit begins reshaping us and changing us from the inside out. When we believe Jesus is better, it changes how we lead, how we follow, how we love. And as he does it, something incredible happens. Our lives begin to, to count for something more. Our lives begin to count for something greater, something bigger than ourselves. And our lives can be, to Jesus, glory forever and ever. Amen. To Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. A life that's been transformed by the gospel is a life that glorifies Jesus Christ. When, when, when you hear the, the blessings uh, at the end of this, it's, it's a, it's a, it follows the same pattern we've seen all the way through Hebrews, that it starts with how great God is. Verse 20 says, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant. What is his greatness? He's the author of peace. How, how ultimate is his power? He raised the dead. How great is he as a caring and loving shepherd? 
And now he showed that for us in laying down his very life so that we could have an eternal relationship with him. That's how great he is. And what does that do to us? Verse 21, that he may equip you for every good thing, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus changes us and he equips us and empowers us. Our lives are to God's glory when the rest of the world watches around us and they're like, I know that guy. I, I know that lady. I know how they used to be. I know the way they acted. And yet, look at the transformation in their life. Look at the way God has changed. So they may not know it was God. They may go, what, what happened to that person? <laughs> they used to be this way, and now they are. And when you say, Jesus did it, who gets the glory? Not us. Him. And what's amazing is that when that happens, what he's doing is he's inviting you into the kingdom and he's using your testimony to make an impact so that more people give glory to God and praise him for what he's done. Our lives become a tool for the glory of God. What a blessing. What a blessing. Our lives, we, we desire for our lives to count for something. We desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We desire for our lives to be, to be a part of a bigger story than just our few decades and our little small patch on this earth. We desire to be a part of something. That's why people go to football games or get involved in some big group or we enjoy serving together or being on a team or playing in a band. We, we enjoy being a part of something greater. And when Jesus is the best to us, when we believe he is better, we're brought into his family and we are used for the glory of God. Your life, your life, just the few decades you got or whatever you've got can be for the glory of God. There's nothing better to be a part of. There's nothing greater to be a part of than to glorify Him forever. To Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. The way we get to respond to that truth today is by remembering Jesus' sacrifice, remembering what He has done for us. And especially here at Thanksgiving, which is an, an American holiday, but a very biblical concept, we do this in remembrance of Him being thankful what Christ has done for us. The Lord's Supper is a way that we can remember what Christ has done for us and proclaim His death and resurrection that washed away our sins. So it's a meal for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So taking this, this meal is a way of remembering Jesus and it's a way of thanking Him for His sacrifice. So it's an act of faith. So today, if you don't yet know the Lord, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask, you just kind of let this, when we pass it, you just, you just put up your hand and say, I'm, I'm not going to take it today. And that is totally fine. And we would love to talk with you more about faith. But we don't want to ask you to do something that you don't believe in. And so this meal is meant for people that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So as we prepare to take this meal, I want to read a, a couple things to you uh, from a few different traditions to remind us about why we do what we do as we prepare this time. So I'm going to put these on the screen for you uh, as I read this today. Christ calls the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and drink nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more than that, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, are sure, uh, share in his true body and blood, as surely as our mouth receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all his suffering and obedience are definitely ours, as if we personally had suffered, 
and made satisfaction for our sins. The Lord's Supper declares to us that our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once and for all. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust their sins are pardoned and that the remaining weakness is covered by the, by the suffering and death of Christ, who, are also, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. I want to lead us now in a prayer of confession, a prayer I grew up with, um, as we prepare our hearts to receive this meal. So you can pray with your eyes open if you'd like to read along with me, uh, but let's, let's hear this prayer together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite the elders to come forward to help me prepare the elements. Uh, And as they do, I want to invite you to continue in that spirit of repentance, confessing our sin before the Lord. Uh, As you pray, we're going to be bringing these trays to you. And if you would like to participate uh, in the Lord's Supper today as a believer, I ask you to take both cups, the the cup of bread and the cup of juice, and hold them. And then we will take them together uh, as a church family when everybody's had a chance uh, to pick them up. So I invite you to continue in a spirit of prayer.